Hey, well, Je- <laughs> <laughs> hey Jeff. Hey, Zach. Welcome, everyone. To Bros. Bibles. And Beer. Episode 49? 50. 50. <laughs> 11. <laughs> we talk with Preston Sprinkle today. The author, the speaker. The lover, the husband, the father, the brother. I don't know if he's a brother. The he's researcher. My, dare I say, he's my brother in Christ. Mm. You can. And I will. Yep. And we talked to Preston about a whole lot. So he's written on issues regarding homosexuality, LGBT, nonviolence as being the way to follow Jesus. How to disciple. Discipleship. Hell. Multiple books. And all with a humble approach that I think you'll find... Regardless of where you stand on an issue, you'll find that he is seeking the truth in love. And he does it well. And I think if more people did it like him, there'd be less of the things that are bad that people do that are not like him. How about that? I totally agree, because the theme of everything he has done in his books and authoring is is the theme of loving people. Um, and probably in hopes that that's how Christ would love them. Mm. It's a good talk. Yeah. You can find his stuff at PrestonSprinkle.com. That's got everything. As he said, one-stop shop, and I will stop, and I will shop. And I would say that, I will say that Scott... So then say it. ...was not live with us. He was in On a... Location. ...in a stairwell in what country? I don't know. Yeah. And America. He, he, did, he did drop in, and that was, that was really good. So if he sounds a little off, it's because he's in a dungeon hallway staircase. Okay. Hallway staircase. It belongs. Mm-hmm. Just like we're in my study. You look how I just I called this little room a study. <laughs> there are books. There are books in this place. There are wooden tables. There are wooden shelvings. There's wainscoting, for God's sake. Is that what that's called? Wayne's <laughs> What? Wayne's coding. Didn't I say that? Oh my Wayne's coding. Who let Matt in here? Get out. Get out. <laughs> All right, leave us a review, read us review us on iTunes and uh, we will love you a lot and we'll read it and talk about it. And find us everywhere else at Bros Bibles Beer. Can I clarify? We we'll only love them if they rate us and review us. We love them harder. Okay. <laughs> Enjoy. That's a mic drop right there. That's well played. <laughs> <laughs> did you come up with that? That is. Yeah, he did. That is. That is uh, <laughs> wow. How many beers have you had, man? That's good. <laughs> I can't get There he Hello. is, Preston. What's up, guys? How you doing? Hey, how you doing? from a small basement in a dungeon. Where are you? <laughs> I'm actually in prison right now. <laughs> it's a good-looking prison. <laughs> yeah. Got a bunch of books. Yeah. So. yeah. You, got, you got to show off the library. Make sure everybody in prison knows you're smart. <laughs> you know, I thought prison wouldn't be that bad if it's like a low security. I mean, you get to work out all day and read all day. Right. Nobody bothers you. Yeah. yeah. yeah you can get your GED you and everything. 
<laughs> just as long as you don't get your ass kicked, I guess it'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. And you got your blue, you got your snowball, your blue snowball. So I have, you know, I have a much better mic, but for some reason when I'm on Skype, I haven't figured out how to get that going. So this one's better than my computer mic, if that's yeah. cool. Yeah. It's fine. not, it's okay. You sound good. Yeah, okay. yeah sounds good. Yeah, we awesome. got, I'm, I'm Zach. Uh, Jeff is right next to me. Hey. Uh, the other bro is Scott. He's on location, also in a prison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Normally we're all in the room. It's together. called work. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are in some you guys are in Southern California? Yeah, Mission Viejo. Right. Oh right on. Okay. Yeah. So what's your connection to Mike Erie? Uh we met him through I have a good friend of mine that is was a missionary in Peru and had gone okay. to Coast Hills where Mike was filling in for a time in Aliso Viejo. Okay. And he introduced me to his podcast, said, you got to listen to this guy because I think you'll like him. And I listened to his podcast and just reached out to him and they they yeah. hooked it up. It took a little scheduling, but he actually came over to our house and recorded it with oh, us. No so it was awesome. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, and I guess his co-host, Andy, lives down the street from me, but I, don't, I didn't even know it and I haven't seen him. So I'm on the lookout oh, for no Andy way. Laura. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, I, I used to live in your neck of the woods. Um, in Boise? I went to Boise High. I mean, I don't think you've been there that long, but I used to live off yeah. Park, Park Center. If you could. No way. I mean, no way. Yeah, way back when, when I was, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, it was uh, so to see somebody else from Boise is uh, exciting because I, I don't know many people that are from Boise. That was back when Meridian and Boise were probably like two separate cities. Now they just run together. I don't know if you've been back recently. It's yeah, I it's have grown been. so much. Oh yeah. They built up everything. It's just sprawling. But Oh yeah. I don't no know. No way. Wow. It's the busy. only thing uh <laughs> the only thing that I know about Boise, um, because I was only there for a year was the big blue turf at the stadium. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but you haven't been there that long, have you? Two, uh, almost no, almost three years. Okay. I'm from SoCal as well, uh, Simi Valley, Ventura County area. Gotcha. Yeah. Speaking uh, of that, yeah. Scott has something for you on that in that regard. Oh yeah, we. Uh, I think we have a Lily connection. Uh, did you play ball with Ted Lily? No way. <laughs> I hit so, my first home run off Ted Lily. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, serving up that straight fastball. Well, I guess well, I guess you call it a fastball. You know I. I want to hear the rest of that, but it was uh, that's crazy. Ted Lilly, his sophomore year, he was junk, man. He he was throwing mid sixties, four seam fastball, waist high, and then he grew like eight inches, and then he became the Ted Lilly that everybody knows now. So I hit my home run in the former, in the pre Ted Lilly, Ted Lilly. So it doesn't really count, but <laughs> yeah. Well, my mine either. I uh, he went to my high school, graduated a couple years before. And I think he uh, signed right out of high school, so he came back, and I caught a bullpen, one of his bullpen sessions as he's warming up to go back to uh, to training camp. You went to Yosemite High? Yeah, yeah. So I went. To, I graduated from Bullard. Okay, yeah, yeah. We played Bullard, yeah. 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 No, Were you I, on uh, Central Valley All-Stars or anything like that? 
That sounds familiar. What was that? It's been a while. Uh, you know, Scott Preston, why don't we just leave you guys? You guys can talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's crazy. What what year? So you played at Yosemite? What year did you graduate? 96? Uh, 98. So, okay, I was 94. So, that's yeah, we must have yeah, we would miss each other. Central Valley All-Stars. That sounds uh yeah, it sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. So not not too exciting, but, you know, it's something. It's something, Scott. <laughs> Don't deny yourself this. <laughs> We're working on Scott's so, self-esteem. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about the podcast. What do you guys uh, love the title? But <laughs> Yeah. Um, we started this based on conversations. I'm sure how a lot of podcasts like us start um, drinking and talking about God and arguing about God and the Bible and, and life in general. <laughs> And so we yeah. think we're we have a sense of self importance that's such that we decided the world needs to hear it, <laughs> and so we we started and it was terrible. We just said that the microphone you're using is great for you in that room. We were using it in the middle yeah. of a room with a bunch of guys talking and drinking, and oh, it picks yeah. up everything. So the first oh, yeah. the first ten or fifteen episodes are almost like a dry run that probably shouldn't even be on the internet, but they are, and uh, yeah. slowly just kind of honing what we're doing and. And getting into a rhythm and and uh, just firing all the people that didn't work out and we're down to us three. <laughs> Anything else, Jeff? Yeah. No, that's the thing with uh, when you first start something, especially when you know I see or I listen to other podcasts, but most are you know professional speakers or pastors, and so they. Yeah they're just it's a natural thing for them and so those first 10 or 15 podcasts like zach was saying if we could go back and delete from the interwebs everywhere those first 10 or 15 we would because uh right i'm embarrassed to go back and listen to my what sounds like i'm in junior high uh just spatting <laughs> off anything i want yeah i, oh, think, I think it's one of those things where once you get to know us and you're familiar with scott jeff and myself you can go yeah. back and kind of just understand and it's almost like you're hanging out with us, but it's not yeah, quite yeah. as now we still retain that feel, the conversational feel. It's not like we're running a radio show or anything, but we're more focused yeah. now. And, uh, okay. whether it's focusing on a guest or if it's just the three of us, the focus is really honesty and where we're at and not having any Christian sheen for the sake of protection or right. polish. And there's a lot of good podcasts that are doing that. That's kind of where we're at. Sounds yeah. like the Bad Christian Podcast. Is it similar similar to those guys? Yeah. It's funny. I didn't know about them until we started, which was like a year and a half ago. They're so fun, and they're doing it so well, yeah. and they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. I'm like, well, why do we need to do this? But all along the way, it's been interesting that there's been these periods of, I'll feel like, what are we, what are we doing? We're not adding anything to the conversation. But then somebody, a stranger, will contact me and say, I really liked this episode for this reason. Yeah. And it just kind of puts yeah. a little wind in the sails. And it's like, okay, maybe we are adding something. And um, I, I think Christianity in general needs more honesty and people that are willing to talk about what they're dealing with now as opposed to just, oh, I, I overcame that. Praise Jesus. Yeah. Everything's great. Yeah. So, cool. I mean, we'll celebrate the victories, but if there's if you're in the shit, we'll, we'll talk about it for real. So that's, that's the awesome. idea. I love it. Love it. So what are we doing today? <laughs> We're talking about you. Um, <laughs> there, I, I'm like, I'm really excited because there's so many ways we can do this. T 
to start, I like I pulled this from your bio on your website, and I'm just gonna read this little paragraph, and we'll go from there. And so, for the listener, this is talking about the uh, Doctor Preston Sprinkle. He loves communicating Christian truths with thoughtfulness, honesty, and grace. He is passionate about approaching topics that everyone wants to know about, but no one wants to talk about. Topics like sexuality, violence, alcohol, hell, and what it means to follow a Jewish prophet king who was executed for treason. He works hard to write, speak, and teach the truth of Scripture and hopes to challenge others to read the Bible while holding their predetermined beliefs loosely. That is something you do well. You you seem to be addicted to writing about stuff the church kind of avoids, like LGBT issues and yeah. nonviolence and and hell. I mean, those are the three that are real. I mean, we can talk about alcohol too. Um, I know you enjoy beer. <laughs> I haven't seen any oh, yeah. blog posts on alcohol though. So maybe I'll have to go back. Uh, I did a few. They're they're pretty old, but yeah, I was thinking about redoing a few. Yeah. Yeah. Where would you go with it? Oh, I mean, you could probably guess. I mean, I think that, well, you know, the alcohol conversation, I think is, it's a great mirror into the way that conservative evangelical, quote unquote, biblical uh, thinkers just get off the rails. And and I, um, in one of my blog posts, I should repost that. I should tweet it again because it's, uh, yeah, I got a little tension a few years ago and then, you know, um, it's just a good reminder that that people are willing to read their preconceived ideas into the text. You know, the thing that like wine wasn't alcoholic or whatever, or, you know, they try to right. say it, you know, is just, you know, or, or so watered down. And well, how, how do you, how do you make sense of, you know, Paul saying then don't get drunk with grape juice, but you know, <laughs> right. like it's just so absurd that people would, that people would make that argument and other people would cite it as like evidence that the, yeah. that the Bible doesn't talk about, alcohol or actually in john 2 the the wedding at cana um i think almost every translation ignores what is so crystal clear in the original the steward at the end doesn't say when they have drunk freely he says when they have gotten drunk the word is methusko it's the same word in ephesians five eighteen. he's talking about when people have been intoxicated then you bring out the you know, bad wine or whatever, but you put, you've provided the good wine first. And, right. and just that kind of like covering up of the hard edges of scripture, um, is just, um, it just drives me crazy. So, so my, my, I mean, I, I love beer, whiskey, wine, all that, you know, and, and, but for me, it's not even really about permission to drink. It's kind of exposing the fact that conservative evangelicals who are more of the teetotaler will read into their inspired word that they, you know, say they revere, they will read into it. They're, cultural presuppositions at whim it's just, it is a disgrace um for those of us who really are trying to be biblical and it's just it drives me crazy that's my short answer yeah that's a good one <laughs> so do you consider yourself uh on the conservative end uh, in general i know la- labels can be ridiculous you're so yeah, much more than a label i, I really don't uh, and i'm not trying to be i, I will I'm fine using labels if they're helpful. I really don't think the conservative liberal labels are helpful at all. I mean, to me, they're, by definition, they're subjective. I mean, my King James only friends think I'm a liberal. You know, my LGBT affirming friends think I'm conservative. And it really depends on the person trying to label me. And and what (laughs) topic you're talking about. 
And what topic? Yeah, I was introduced. I, I was on the uh, Liturgist podcast, and uh, they introduced me as kind of a they didn't know what to do with me because they said, well, he's kind of like a, a liberal evangelical because he's an annihilationist and and a pacifist. And I'm like, okay, the annihilation, I, I can, I can kind of get where you would consider that liberal, but pacifist is excessively conservative. Like the Mennonites from 100 years ago were the head cover wearing, you know, like people right. who took Jesus's words most literal. Like it was a hyper conservative view. And yet because of its association with liberal politics in the 70s 80s that didn't vote for reagan you know and were commies and you know whatever it, it beca- took on this kind of liberal connotation but so i i think that the, the yeah liberal conservative when we talk theology gets so unhelpfully blurred with politics and and even in cultural things that it, i think it's unhelpful when we put those labels on so honestly i and i'm i'm, I'm not trying to like slip out out of category categorization as a whole i just think that yeah i think it's unhelpful i yeah so it depends on the issue i guess you would say i would be conservative on this liberal on that depending on what you even mean by it <laughs> it seems like people want to i mean society especially media wants to stick people in a box and and yeah i, I just having um listened and watched um much of the Twitter feed and also your blogs and um, some of your messages, um, especially just preparing for, for today's is that you have this strong belief in the Bible. However, all of what, uh, well, at least the controversial issues um, it's when you get in a conversation with someone, there doesn't seem to be a sticking point and people want to stick people in a box. And so if you say, well, how could you say that? You know, of course, God doesn't believe, you know, that there should be uh, or people should be aspiring to a gay life or um, whatever it might be. The controversy within church and society. And you seem to float atop that you have your belief in the Bible. Yeah. But then when it comes yeah. to those issues, you're like, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure we should yeah. be against or for yeah. Why not just the conversation in loving? Yeah. Yeah. And in a sense, that makes me liberal because I, I enjoy dialoguing across I all kinds it. of <laughs> topics. <laughs> you know, what's funny is um, I, I recently read a book. I got it. Oh, this one right here. Um, he reaches the righteous the mind by Jonathan Haidt. This, this is a fascinating nice. book. He's an atheist Jew, a PhD in moral psychology, and, and but he's attacking what people call liberal today. He goes, it's not true liberalism is let's get all kinds of perspectives on the table. And let's talk about it. But he says, no, no, no. What we have today is liberalism gone wrong. It's now illiberalism where certain conversations aren't allowed to be voiced. We shut down conversations. Even look, I, I'm a well, do we want to get into Trump? I, I am. Not a fan of Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. We'll get At into all. whatever you whatever you bring up is we're going to get into it. So it's your choice. But 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 it, <laughs> and I've written. I mean, I've never. I don't think I've said one thing positive about Donald Trump except I guess we should still pray for our leaders, kind of thing. At the same time, some of the anti-Trump rhetoric is not true liberal rhetoric. It's illiberal. It's not saying, "Hey, let's get a good, kind dialogue and let's listen to the actual facts." It's we're going to muzzle any other voice besides just one voice. That's not true liberalism. True liberal society will encourage a democratic 
conversation in the context of free speech and let's let the evidence go where it leads and let's be kind to each other. I don't see that today. Our so-called liberal society is right. is gone beyond where I think it's trying to go. I think I'm going to yeah, even liberal, an applause uh, break right there. Yeah. Even liberal liberal professors are kind of like, oh no, what did we do? We've created a monster with uh, with our liberalism. The students have taken it too far. Right, right. And and the so you know the whole tolerance thing is a total sh- sham. I mean that there's so much intolerance in the tolerant movement. <laughs> you know, I mean it's very you know tolerance is very selective today. And I think that's where exactly what you said. I think even people that had a, a really pure um, I- ideal of liberalism have seen it just gone so far to where it's like this is not this it is not healthy. It doesn't have anything to this do with tolerance. Not, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. It's, yeah. We were talking a little bit earlier. Did you hear about Lifeway pulling the Christian hip hop show Baraka's album from the shelves? No, I've heard about them pulling other authors from the shelves. Yeah, Jen Hatmaker. I'm sure there's a bunch. Yeah. But um, with Show Baraka, this happened pretty recently. The, one of the songs, I believe it's the last song on the album, contains the word penis. And they pulled it because it contains that word. <laughs> I, see, I see you chuckling. And I was, I mean, this drives me absolutely nuts. And it's, I don't know what we do about it because it seems like you compare it to a lot of the garbage that's in the Bible, and I don't say garbage like not true or anything no, like that. It's, it's a mess. The dirt that's in the Bible, the the real life that took place yeah. in the Bible, they might as well pull the Bibles. I don't. They got sex help books for for <laughs> Christians. There's one book I can't remember the name. It was in the article in the Washington Post, but it contains the word penis like 47 times in describing different ways a Christian marriage can operate and thrive, uh, include. Yeah. Including the, uh, including the nickname Mister Happy, and that was a that was a quote. <laughs> they're, they're selling that, but they pull off this Christian rapper. I don't know what's behind that. Well, there's a lot behind that, yeah. but it's kind of in the same ballpark. Are we creating Christians that are just we're trying to protect the kids or keep things safe? And yeah. is the consequence of that Christians that don't know how to operate in the world? They're, yeah. they're insulated from it. And if so, like, what do we do about that? And it's also related to the college thing where kids, we create these safe spaces, uh-huh. whether it's on the campus or whether it's in our churches, we try to protect from the outside world. And then it renders us weak to, to operate in culture. Your thoughts. Oh man, where do I go? Well, first of all, I, I, yeah, through personal experience, I, I, I know about the whole Lifeway thing. I, when I, turned in my my manuscript for my nonviolence book um it contained the word shit in the in an appendix now in context i was talking about just war theory and uh my cuss word was a quote from a um a drill sergeant who t- when when one of my students who was in in the military or training for the military was operating a 50 caliber gun and he says wait a minute how how do i how do I tell the difference between the civilian and the soldier? And the drill sergeant kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, look, civilians are going to die. Shit happens. And that was a turning point for him as a believer saying, well, wait a minute. That's not collateral damage. Those are innocent lives that you're telling me that they're just shit happens, you know? So I quoted that and my publisher, David C. Cook said, look, I I love what you're doing here. And your point is pretty compelling and convicting 
just so you know, Lifeway is not going to cover this book, uh, or, uh, you know, put it on the shelves if they see a swear word. I said, but the swear word, look at look at the broader content. And I started trying to explain, like, well, wait a minute. If you're more bothered by the swear word than the fact that our military is telling people that innocent lives or shit happens. <laughs> yeah. And he, 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 he started laughing, saying, look. You're not going to go against the, I mean, yeah, I, I know what you're saying and there's no argument really, counter argument to what you're saying, but they're not going to carry it. Are you okay with that? You know what I said? This is, this is a 2012. I can't wait. He said, well, no, this, this shows how West Coast oblivious I am. I said, I don't even know who Lifeway is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I literally didn't know. It was a few years ago when I found out like, oh, this is like a huge, so I'm like, I don't, some bookstore is not going to care. Like, I don't care. Like people buy stuff on Amazon anyway. So Anyway, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, to answer your question, and, and, and you know, you're kind of throwing me a softball. Yeah, I think that um, uh, that sort of insul- insulated version of Christianity isn't working. It's not working in discipleship. It's not working in keeping people in the church. You know, statistically, 80% leave the church by the time they're 29 or whatever. Um, why do they leave the church? Because they wake up and say that this Christian, this insulated version of Christianity isn't real. This isn't meaningful. This isn't, then they start reading the Bible and they read about Jesus and they're like, wait a minute, I learned about Christianity, American Christianity, but I didn't learn about Jesus who was, you know, doesn't fit the mold either. So yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's not, not helpful at all for various reasons, let alone it makes Christianity seem incredibly irrelevant that we we can't say the word penis when that's what's on everybody guy's mind every hour of every day i mean come on yeah can't talk about penis what are we doing (laughs) what else are we gonna talk about (laughs) (laughs) you know what's funny is in bible translations that passage in in uh, first corinthians uh first kings 12 when uh rayo but when they start complaining about the the harshness that you know solomon laid on the people and and they said, Rehoboam, you know, can you free us from these burdens? And he goes, look, my little finger is thicker than Solomon's loins. <laughs> I'm like, come on, loins, really? Like, that's not what's going on there. What's a, what's a better English word, a direct translation, according to Preston Sprinkle? It's, it's it, I, my little finger is thicker than Solomon's member. <laughs> if you want to keep it kind of whatever, a little, little yeah. peaky. So, yeah, that's anyway. <laughs> I'm going to start saying, holy loins. That's terrible. <laughs> and by definition, your loins are set apart from every other man's. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> there was something uh, you were talking about this, the society becoming weaker or, or just the dumbing down of things and uh, protecting everything. And I started thinking about, I started like, Okay, we have a, like this world of generalizations and assumptions that are made, um, you know, but they're based all off weak relationships. So yeah, we the Christian church pushes back on, you know, having members of their church that are or associate with groups or have problems and they might even be struggling. And to struggle means you're trying, you're trying to you know, live this life in Christ, but that by pushing away by so many churches and pushing back on not loving people, which a lot of your books talk about, or just that struggle of of so many people feeling like they don't have a place. 
Um, and the liturgist is a perfect example of, you know, where they're trying to bring people in that just don't feel like they belong. But it, it kind of perpetuates itself, um, you know, this generalization. And, and then it kind of creates an exponential wedge um, between the church and people and the, the world and the church. And all of a sudden you have this, we have this huge uh, segregation gap um, and our culture is pushing back on Christianity and, and, but really it's based off weak relationships. Cause if any one of us had a conversation with, it doesn't matter who it was, a refugee or someone who was a lesbian or someone who was just extremely being torn down by pornography or just the addiction or any addiction, um, to have a one-on-one with that person and really live life a little bit with them would change everything. The problem is as a yeah. whole, we're failing. Um, and I don't, you have the answer, Preston. <laughs> I was waiting for the question. <laughs> that was great, Jeff. Preach. Uh, golly. Um, yeah. Preach that. That's uh, I, w- when you're not in relationship with somebody, it's so much easier to, to otherize them, right. To, to treat them like an issue, to treat them like an other, so somebody out there. And I, I think, um, gosh, there's se- several things going on there. You know, I think with the rise of social media has enabled us people to spend more time relating to people in a, in a, I don't want to say depersonal. Well, it is kind of depersonalized in, mm-hmm. in, in in less of a personalized way than if you're face to face, life to life, you know, in an embodied relationship. And, um, I remember, so I, yeah, I get, you know, hammered pretty hard with LGBT stuff from, from conservatives and liberals. I mean, I, um, and it's, you know, somebody asked me, I think it was like six months ago. They said, man, I see, you know, you get, you get hammered pretty hard, you know, on, on social media and, you know, blogs or whatever. And somebody said, do do you ever get, that kind of attacked like in person, like when you go speak and I kind of thought for a second, I said, no, actually I never have. (laughs) I've had disagreement, like really good disagreement, but it's never this like weird, like dehumanizing, you know, F off or whatever that you see on social media. I've never had that person person, even when there's significant disagreement, because when you're, when you have some level of relationship, even if it's just kind of a face to face encounter, that, that, that's a natural bridge to the other person, e- e- even in the midst of disagreement. That's the thing. Like, it doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything. No. I mean, I think w- when you're in a relationship, you can, you can humanize the other person, even in the midst of disagreement. H- how to do that? Like, what's the answer? I mean, I, I mean, this may spill over into more ecclesiology. I, I, you know, I think that my overarching ecclesiology, which is, a total mess right now. It's, you know, <laughs> I feel like I took my ecclesiology. <laughs> we were just talking about ecclesiology, so we know what that means. But for the listener, what does that okay. mean? Uh, your your view of church. What What is church supposed to be? Uh, the doctrine of church or whatever. And, and um, in the New Testament, the most dominant metaphor for believers is that they're family. It, it seems that the most significant thing about the church you know, is that we are relationally just like together, one body, one family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ all together. Um, 
And even though every church is says they're trying to accomplish that, I don't think our current models on the whole are prioritizing the the desperate need and unique identity of church as family. And again, you can be you can be faithful at church, you can even serve and still be incredibly isolated, alone and unknown and not know other people. I've been in part of several churches where it's like nobody really knows I've been there years and nobody really knows me. <laughs> be, yeah. Because it, it is still sort of very programmatic and built around, you know, um, uh, a qual- high quality service, and and whether or not relationships happen are kind of sloughed off to small groups, and even there they don't really know what they're doing, and so that that may be part of it. I wonder if our view of church and our lower priority of family and relationships, in a sense, doesn't help this need for relationships to happen. Yeah, and, I'm kind of I'm kind of wandering around, but you think you get the point. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful. Just the fact that you say you're a, you're a mess when it comes to this is one of the reasons I love you, um, and I love what you're doing. It's like added on to. We'll probably get to some of your changes when it comes to some of the biblical interpretation that you've gone through that are pretty public. But um, those reasons too make you relatively unique in. Uh, in your industry, I guess we'll call it the the admission of when you're wrong or where you made yeah. a mistake or even what you're wrestling with now and how you, you used to see things one way very securely and now you're not as secure, but you kind of still hold to that previous belief and just admitting yeah. you're a mess on church and that's your, I hear you on the podcast and answering questions, you're definitely wrestling with church. So do you have anything kind of, your gut feeling practically that churches like say a moderate sized church that's doing it the the church building way there's formulas to grow your church they're kind of following that stuff how do they break free of that and still be the institution but do better at what we're missing according to Preston Sprinkle yeah, I I don't want to speak authoritatively on that because I <laughs> I'm neither a practitioner nor a theologian who who has that figured out. So I'll just give you some kind of informal thoughts. I mean, I guess there's two approaches that people take that recognize this as a problem. One is to keep the basic structure of what we're doing as church and just try to kind of gut it and like, you know, do, do things differently within that typical structure. Um, The other approach is to scrap the entire thing and start from the ground up. That latter approach is pretty much what Francis Chan is doing for 18 years. You know, he was at the mega church and tried to get people to be more authentic disciples. And, and he, he kind of realized whether he's right or wrong, I don't know, but I mean, he realized I I really can't do this unless I just kind of start over from ground up. And so that's what he's doing in San Francisco. And I, you know, I'm I, to be honest, I'm really, really attracted to his model up there. I'm not saying it's the only way, um, but I've seen it from a distance. I've seen it in person, talked to him pretty extensively, and and it it's messy. It's got problems. It's whatever, but it seems to be working in the sense of reaching the lost, making disciples, raising up leaders. Um, and you know, one of the things they've done is. They've they they've now expanded to eighteen or no sixteen house churches. Four years ago there was one, and then it doubled, doubled, doubled. They haven't spent a single dime on church, <laughs> and they have like all these converts, disciples. They have like ex cons that are now pastors and now raising up leaders, and like it's like 
you know when you read the book of Acts and it's like a bunch of misfits, like people are getting saved, movements are happening. It really does feel like that. Like, wait a minute, there's no, all the bells and whistles are gone. So they didn't just try to like kind of gut the structure and kind of let's do community groups better. Let's do sermons better. Let's do all these things better. They said, let's just scrap the whole thing. Let's just gather, eat bread, drink wine, uh, pray together, study the scriptures and just do it for free and see what happens. And it's really pretty amazing. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's the only way, but I, I, I think there is a need for more things like that, like courageous people to say, you know what, I'm just going to really try to go and just scrap the whole thing and start. I don't want to say start over like we just ditched hit church tradition or whatever, but like let's let's try to be a little more radical in how we're rethinking these things because we need to we need to seriously rethink I think the way we're doing church because statistically it's just it's not working. <laughs> Yeah, there seems to be some adventure and excitement when you're just starting something new, though. I mean, to yeah, you know, go to the church building and you've got the pastor and you've got the people that have been there and you just join the group. It's one thing. When you go off and start your own thing and it's, um, it's kind of – it's not anti-church, but it certainly doesn't look like what normal church looks like. And that's exciting. And I, at mm-hmm. least in today's society, it seems like that's where a lot of – um, people are going. They want to go where there's excitement and they want to go where things are new and they want to go where things are being challenged and, and the Bible's being questioned um, in a good way. Like, we need to have yeah. conversations because things have been closed off for many, many generations. And it was just mm-hmm. like, you know, I grew up in a, a Catholic church until I was 11. It was just come in, sit down, stand up, kneel, <laughs> sit down, and, you know, do what you're told. So. Yeah. Francis uh, yeah. model is is exciting. I, I think generally what I and this may be I don't know if I've actually said this ever before, but I, I wonder if we need to kind of invert the current model to where currently um, and, and despite what pastors may say at the end of the day, you know, the Sunday service, um, the quality of the actual service is kind of a high priority. You know, they're spending a long time preparing the message, and it's not just studying the passage, it's how to present this in a way that's rhetorically effective. And if there's newcomers, they're going to say, wow, that was a good message, I want to come back. It's going to keep people there because the music was, you know, uh, in tune and good quality. And, and I'm all for high quality. I'm not, I'm not saying any of this is bad, but that, that has become the major priority. And if you can get connected, well, that's kind of secondary. That's you know, the oh, we have small groups for that. We have this, that. We we have that available. What if we just inverted that whole thing to where um, connecting in authentic discipling relationships with other believers is is that is the that is number one. Um, large gathering, you know, kind of like uh, all that stuff is number two. And I, you know, this is what. And I'm I'm not actually a, a Chan groupie. I <laughs> I can talk about the things that we would disagree on, not to be a whole other. But like you know, they they do have a all the house churches get together once a month for a big large celebration. But that's not the primary identity of their gathering. Most of the times they gather in homes. There's a meal. There's uh, tons of prayer. They're laying hands on people. They're you know, this long relationally driven meetings. Uh, and I said, what do you do with the high maintenance people that are just kind of there for a show? They said, they don't stick around. Like we're all reading the Bible extensively together. We're praying together. We're getting into each other's lives. Like we're doing what church should do. And we're not trying to attract more and more. We're not trying to grow. We're trying to make disciples. And the growth that happens is authentic growth. It's not just, you know, 
growth for the sake of growth. Um, so I don't know. Okay. Those are scattered thoughts. Okay. <laughs> shifting, shifting gears. I, I run into people who say that, uh, you know, Jesus died on the cross and did away with the devil. Devil doesn't exist anymore. How do you respond? Really? How do you respond to that? That he like just totally destroyed him like on the, the cross? Like that work on the cross or he's powerless has left. Yeah, sure. However you want to say it. The devil is powerless. Whereas others will say you need to be aware. You need to recognize that there's a lion out there ready to devour you. So where, where are you on, yeah. on that? Yeah, it seems so clear if you take the New Testament seriously that the devil still... I mean, you quoted First Peter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, and you know our battle's not with flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, you know all the passages. So I, I don't know how I would need to see how they would... Either this is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm interested in that. I want to know, like, dude, ha- convince me. Like, I, I'm not familiar right. with that. Like, it's, I have all these verses that I would need you to offer a better interpretation than one I've been... Uh, assume, but I mean, to me, the, the the cross and what happened to the devil and sin and the spiritual forces of darkness—it's an already not yet paradigm. Meaning, there has been um, a massive blow to evil, to sin, to the devil, to just you know, um, the forces of darkness. But the full, final completion of that victory will await when he returns, and we live in that kind of tension of victory and yet we're still fighting the battle um and to me again that that seems very clear that sort of already not yet we're living in in between times um that seems very clear from the new testament so well an example is that we yeah, and, a lot to convince oh, me sorry, and those sorry. um yeah those all those verses are after jesus death burial and resurrection so the right. apostles are writing that in in full light of what what they understand about what the cross accomplished. So being taught by Jesus, right. they're still able to yeah. write that after after the, the crucifixion. And I would you know, I would take most of the stuff in the book of Revelation to be first century. Okay. At the same time, you still do have some end time stuff at the end and there the devil's finally defeated in Revelation nineteen and twenty. So um and again I'm not saying that as some sort of like rapture person that it's all future. It's not I think ninety percent of it's first century politics, but um, you still do have future defeat of Satan there. So, well, I walked, I brought this up and then Zach nailed me. He said, uh, uh, really? Cause I, something had happened. It was probably a conversation with my wife and she, she was upset. And, and I'm like, you know, I, that happens a lot. I think that, I think that I let the devil, I let the devil in the door <laughs> and he's like, really? I think that might've been you. Can it just be you and not the devil? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, no. so I've come to the conclusion then when I screw up, I have partnered. It's probably you. Not the I will know. I, <laughs> I, 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 we tried to like define this middle area. I'm like, I've, I'm partnering when, with the devil when I've just gone off. And I know it's against my heart and it's, it's against the heart that, yeah. that I've been given. And uh, I'm like, okay, let's just rest on. I'm partnering with the devil when I do stupid to say stupid things or I just like to imagine Jeff walking in a park with the devil holding hands in those moments. His new partner. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. I have a beard yeah, in my I think left the, uh, and he has a pitchfork <laughs> in his right. Go ahead. The important part though that it's more than just something that people made up, that the devil is more than just a figment of some some people's imagination. Um, that it, 
yeah it's, it's actual yeah i mean i th- there is that view that you know is the devil a personal figure or not and some people take the devil the idea of satan or the devil is kind of a, a description of the forces of evil or whatever i just you don't see a lot of uh well you don't see the devil in the old testament very often as a personal figure you've got you know maybe job one although that's disputed you know um genesis 3 doesn't say that's satan it just it, we don't know that until the book of Revelation refers back to the snake being Satan. Uh, you have a verse in Chronicles and Zechariah 3 or 4 or something like that. So, I mean, you do, you do have some references, but admittedly, you don't see the devil running around all over the place in the Old Testament. But in intertestamental Judaism, you do see that idea of a personal uh, figure being the leader of the sort of demonic realm being all over the place in Judaism. And then the New Testament is birthed out of that and pretty much adopts this well-developed Jewish view of this Satan figure being a, a personal arch enemy of, of God. I mean, is it God's fault that he made Bathsheba so beautiful or is it the devil's fault for, you know, <laughs> let it leak into his mind? Like, wow, that's pretty beautiful. It's like, this is, this is, what if Bathsheba wasn't actually that beautiful, but David just had a thing for, for her type. <laughs> It's all this thing. Maybe she was dressed. Maybe she was dressed up in a red suit and a little red tail and a pitchfork, and he was kind of uh, into that thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, it? and that's the other thing is is you know, not going, not trying to argue against other people's misconceptions or taking those and throwing out the idea of of any any theology or any biblical yeah. topic. You can't you can't take what people have said about it and then use that to dismiss the idea altogether. Sure. Got to dis- yeah. and and I and that's what I appreciate appreciate yeah. about yeah. you, Preston, and and then reading Racing Hell with when um that you're you know you bring up what other people have said, but you're ultimately going back to scripture and and looking at what scripture is saying about it and not dismissing it because people are yeah. abusing it or misusing it or misapplying it. Because right. if you did that, then you you got to throw out everything because everything's been you mis- oh, misapplied yeah. and uh, grace. Uh, grace has been misapplied, you know, throw that out because people abuse it. Um, yeah. so I, I mean, that's one thing that I've, I've been appreciating about listening to, uh, to your, uh, your podcast. Oh, thanks man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, going back a little bit, you, you had mentioned discipleship and your most recent book is called go and it's about discipleship. Um, mm-hmm. and you kind of mentioned when we were talking about churches and how we can do church better, a large part of that is how we disciple people. How is what you're spelling out um, different than what your average church is doing? Um, let's see. That's a good question. You know, I I never want to be the guy who says all the churches are doing it wrong. So I, I really got to stay clear of right. you know, broad very, brushing. Very or, general. Um, yeah. yeah, there's... So I think um, the two... Well, there's several main themes in that book it, it, you know it's the book was birthed out of this barna study on the state of discipleship in the church where long story short through many different lenses and angles the conclusion was the church isn't doing discipleship very well <laughs> and if you look at the just the meaning of discipleship is just becoming more like jesus which means discipleship isn't some subset of christianity i mean discipleship is just christianship it's not limited to one-on-one meetings or small group studies or whatever. It, it, this is just the way of the Christian life. So that, if, if the church isn't doing that well, if the church isn't becoming like Jesus well, then that's a huge problem. Number two, um, I think when we talk about becoming more like Jesus, uh, 
in mo well yeah i'm gonna go ahead and say most more than 50 (laughs) percent in most american christian minds when they say i want to be more like jesus it's not the full picture of the first century peasant you read the thing on my on my website the peasant who was crucified for being anti-political yeah <laughs> anti-patriotic or whatever enemy of the state i mean he you know yeah the, the, the first century jesus man he, he didn't you know he made the religious people mad he upset the whole political stability of the first century i mean he called people to die with even people were like no i really do want to follow you and he's like all right come eat my flesh like he wasn't seeker sensitive at all like <laughs> he, he just breaks apart all these stereotypes so when people today say i want to be like jesus it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a type of Jesus filtered through the thick lens of twentieth late twentieth century, um, you know, American religion. You know, right. this sort of moral, uh, you know, person who just wants you to, you know, be wise with your money and 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 vote Republican and you know um, have a good family life and you know don't let anybody mess with your private property and. These are caricatures, of course, but I mean, I think there's enough right. of that out there that's like, oh, I'm the whole refugee thing. I don't know where you guys are on that, but I mean, the the, gosh, some of the stuff I hear from Christians, it's like, you know, how much Bible are you reading compared to Fox News? You know, like, oh, these narratives driving what Christians value and don't value and stuff is just really striking. So, so all that to say, going back to discipleship, when we say we need to become more like Jesus, we need to back up and say, okay, what? <laughs> Who, we need to go back to the yeah. drawing board and say, who is this Jesus we're trying to be like? And yeah. are we are we pursuing that? Yeah, anyway. well, then why don't we – you mentioned it, the refugees, and it, I think it kind of ties into your approach to nonviolence. And can you talk a little bit about nonviolence and what that means to you? And I'm assuming you believe following Jesus is the way of nonviolence. And how does that apply yeah. to how can me as a Christian struggling with – you know, worrying about who's coming in, worrying about safety for my family or the people I love. How do I marry that with the way of nonviolence? Man. So that, yeah, that the non, the violence and nonviolence conversations, it's tough. And, and I, there's good Christian thinkers throughout history who have landed on variations of this perspective. Okay. And I'm, you know, I'm very respectful of that. Um, so through my own study, and, and I was not at all raised in a nonviolent home at all. Like I, I remember as a teenager hearing about a Christian who claimed to be a pacifist. My immediate reaction was just to laugh and say, "Well, you can't be a Christian and a pacifist. Like that's not possible. Right? You can't follow Jesus and be a pacifist. Like that was just my worldview growing up. Same. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And I don't, you know. Um, but then it took me, I, you know. 15 years in my Christian journey, I just, oh, I was teaching a class on ethics and we wrestled with warfare and violence and just war th- theory. And I said, well, I'm the professor. I need to kind of lay out my own presuppositions and look at this unbiasedly. And long story short, through studying scripture and early church history, I was like, man, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of support for this whole nonviolent thing. So that's, um, so th- that's where I landed was at a position, what I, what I would call absolute nonviolence, which means I don't think and I think here's the thing. I don't. I think we always need to bring it back to theological categories. N- let's not get into individual okay. situations, whatever. Right, let's, right. Theological categories is 
does a Christian should a Christian ever use violence to defeat evil? And if we look at it through that lens, I just don't see really any New Testament support to say that Christians should use violence to confront evil. Um, and, and and here's where all the, you know, what about this? What about the guy trying to rape your family? All this stuff. I said, we can get there, but we first need to establish a theology of how to confront evil. And what does the cross of Jesus say to your respective positions of how to confront evil? Once you go there, then we can go to all the secondary questions. And that's where, you know, it's the most fascinating for, thing for me was to see that the early church, the first 300 years of Christianity, and you know, they couldn't agree on anything. They couldn't even agree on which books belonged to the Bible. They couldn't agree on the deity of Christ. They couldn't, they couldn't agree on anything. The one thing they actually agreed on was that Christians should never use violence, or should, sorry, that Christians should never kill another person in self-defense and warfare and anything like killing is never ever like it was one of the most uniform beliefs in early christianity to me that was fat i mean i was like golly like and that was pre-constantine when you know now the church moved from a position of persecution to a position of power and church and state were wedded and it's like you can you can see as clear as day how the church changed to become more of a just war uh, uh to advocate for a just war position it kind of had to once it married rome you know right. um so so let me, let me say one more thing um to, to me the the more individual specific questions of should i as a husband ever use violence as a last resort to protect my family to me that's secondary you, you want to shoot the guy who's trying to you know kill your kids fine for the few hundred cases that happens go for it the main problem is the excessive militaristic spirit within modern day American evangelicalism. I'll give you the last resort thing. That's, I'm not there yet, but if that if you want to say last resort, that's fine. The problem is not that evangelicals want to use violence as a last resort. It's it's they want to use it as a first resort, as preemptive violence, as you know, as the president of Liberty said, you know, we need to arm our students so they can we can get those Muslims before they get us. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's that it's that I want to overpower the enemy with more power. That spirit that bleeds down into marriage, that bleeds down into how you pastor, that bleeds mm. down into how you treat your neighbor, it bleeds down into so many things. So to me, that is the and I don't know if I made this crystal clear in my book, that to me that's the main idolatrous problem in America, aside from the guy trying to you know break in and rape your wife for no reason you know i i don't want to i don't want to speak like that's not a thing so i i don't want to yeah i'm not trying to be things happen i i know this i know you (laughs) said it wasn't a i have a very i do have a specific personal question for you preston related to that um well that was a drop the mic moment there um (laughs) that and it's so true because i heard you talk i heard you talk about on one of your I don't know if it's a blog or one of your messages about the militaristic. Uh, the question was brought up, you know, uh, it had like a Middle Eastern name or something. And 30% of, oh God. Re- 30% of Republicans That's said, it. yes, let's, yeah. it was like Agrabah. Agrabah. Yeah. It was a bomb Agrabah from Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should we bomb Agrabah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we should go ahead and bomb Cartoon City. Yeah. It was like 30% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats wanted to, yeah. yes, oh. let's bomb Agrabah. It's like, by the way, you're all idiots. Um, okay, I have a really serious question for you. <clears throat> um, since you believe in nonviolence, but this is a very specific personal question. Sounds you, like a trap. Yeah. 
I want to yeah. get Preston in a box. Um, you, <laughs> you are in a field 2,000 years ago. There's a circle of Roman soldiers fully armed. You are with your best friend, Jesus of Nazareth. Caesar is speaking to Jesus as if he were dirt. However, the fact that Caesar has brought JC and Preston Sprinkle to this field is profound. There is no doubt that Caesar intends to drive a sword through Jesus' chest. Do you, A, watch Caesar slaughter the Son of God, B, wield your sword and drive it through the heart of the Roman emperor, or C, cower in the grassy field, sprinkling in your pants like a little baby? <laughs> Do you say sprinkling in your pants? Yeah. Yeah, I had to. That's a mic drop right there. That's well played. (laughs) (laughs) Did you come up with that? That is. Yeah, he did. That that is. uh, (laughs) Wow. How many beers have you had, man? That's good. (laughs) That was after his morning. Yeah, I think I would. uh, I I think option one. (laughs) That was after my quiet time. (laughs) I think option one has a lot of theological, um, interesting theological allusions to it. Yeah. yeah, what, it w- what if it was before the appointed time? You can't let it happen then. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Scott. Yeah, let's say you. It's know, almost like it's almost like it's Peter. Cool. Like he keeps trying to stand up for Jesus, saying, "No way, am I going to let this happen?" And Jesus is like, "Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got this." Yeah. So you said one has the most interesting. Is that your answer then? Jeff wants an answer. Yeah. We need a box to put okay. Preston in. Well. Uh, to be realistic, uh, um, n- no situation has only three options. So this is officially a, a very theoretical um, uh, situation. So just call it stupid. Just call it stupid. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna go with one. I'm gonna go with one. No, but this is this is what people do when somebody breaks into your. You know, the whole like, right. what are you gonna do when someone breaks into your home? Right. Are you gonna kill them or not? As right. if those are the two like. Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, dirty Harry, boom, hip shot, whistle, and put it back in my holster and, <laughs> you know, go out to take my kids out to dinner and save the day. As if it's either kill or be killed. All in slow um, motion, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally appreciate the answer. You should definitely run for office in a few years. <laughs> you have way, a, a way of communicating uh, that would, uh, you know, just be fine with everyone. I don't know. He seems to except angry. for except for the military leaders. No, I'm, I'm going with option one. All right, I'm going with option one. Yeah. How do you even react after that? Oh, my best friend, Jesus of Nazareth, just got slain in the middle of the field, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of soldiers. Now what? Maybe that's the time you. That's when Preston says, "I didn't know this guy. I was just out here." <laughs> that's what I would have done. He was serving bread. Yeah, <laughs> he was serving would. good wine at the wedding. And so one thing that's clear. You, it's been interesting watching your journey when people ask you about hell. Well, you did write Erasing Hell with Francis Chan, and you've moved from this believer in eternal conscious torment. Unbelievable, that phone. I cannot believe it. Who does this? Pardon me. It was probably President Trump. We had him call a couple, couple weeks ago. Um, but you've moved from a view, a traditional view of hell, and you've humble, humbly kind of shifted. I remember times where you wouldn't even say you knew exactly what you believed, but now it seems like you're like relatively loosely yeah. landing in a, some sort of conditional annihilationism. Is that still yeah. the, still the case? Yeah, you know my 
the way the the way I would frame it is I would say based on the evidence that I've examined in this point of my journey, uh, the overwhelming amount of biblical evidence supports annihilation. That that's what I would say. People say, "Are you annihilationist?" And I guess I think I even referred to myself as an annihilationist, you know, a few minutes ago. And and I'm I'm happy with that position. My only hesitation is that I do have a huge respect for church tradition, especially when there's um, a not unanimous, but a, a long-standing majority of thinkers from many different. Um, subsets of Christianity have endorsed the traditional view, the ECT view, eternal conscious torment. Um, so for me to go against a, a large tide of tradition, I want to make sure I have all my T's crossed and I's dotted. And I honestly just haven't had the time to work through every single verse, do all the word studies on my own, do everything. So that's my only hesitation. Like if you put me on stage with like, you know, the most ardent defender of the traditional view, I may still win. I don't know. But, I mean, it's going to, you know, he, he, I'm not going to have like a real well-polished answer to everything he's going to throw at me. So, but based on the, I don't know, hundred of hours, 200 hours I spent on that specific question, more and mo the more time I spend on it, the more I am convinced of the annihilation position. I think it has an overwhelming amount of biblical support. Like it's, it's, it, yeah, it's pretty shocking, actually, <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to belittle people that aren't there yet or whatever, but I mean, it, it oh, is you're shocking. Not, you're not. Yeah, well, you know, even, you know, I'll be in Yeah, settings how dare you? About, <laughs> I'll be in settings talking about this, and I'll say, all right, well, let, let's let's quote John 3.16. You know, for God's love of the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall not, will not perish. And everybody goes, huh. Light bulb. I never thought about that. I'm like, you know, how'd you never, this is John 3, friggin' 16. You never thought about that? And I, you know, I got to apologize for being so whatever. But like, right. th this is what I mean. Like this whole veneer of being biblical Christians when we're not, we're, we're, we just have these thick lenses of, you know, late 1980s American conservative evangelical interpretations of the Bible and when things in scripture don't fit that, we just glaze right over it until we get to a spot in our spiritual journey where we're willing to genuinely lay our presuppositions on the table and look at the text. And when I did that, I was like, is this the same Bible I've been reading? Because I've seen annihilation yeah. everywhere. Like the language of destruction is like used over a hundred times in reference to the final state of unbelievers. I never even thought about that. Um, so in, in to be clear, in Erasing Hell, we devoted like two pages to the duration of hell because people say, oh, so you don't believe what you wrote? No, I believe like 98% of what I wrote. <laughs> and even that 2%, even even when we did talk about the duration, both Francis and I said we were actually shocked at how much evidence there is for annihilation. But based on these passages and tradition, we're going to lean towards a traditional view. So even there, it wasn't like I was – I didn't write a book defending the traditional view. I wrote a book saying that there is a place called hell. The punishment is irreversible. Um and I would still hold to that view pretty strongly. Yeah, can I just quote you something here? Sure. Um, I don't know if you've heard, if you've uh, seen this book. The lake of fire is the final destination for both the devil and unbelievers. We have already seen that the phrase "tormented day and night, forever and ever" refers to a never-ending punishment for the wicked. The same phrase "forever and ever" is used to describe the reign of God's people, which will never end. Revelation. 
22.5. So I don't know if you've, I mean, that's page 106 of uh, <clears throat> Erasing Hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was going to be one of my questions. Uh, that's part of the 2%. Uh, that's the 2%. He wrote that. That was, yeah. that was Francis. Francis. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to tell, I tried to push. <laughs> yeah. So in, in a race in hell, we based our, our leanings towards uh, the traditional view based on three passages, Matthew 20, 25, 46, revelation 14, nine through 11, and then revelation 20 verses 10 to 15. Um, and yeah, I, w- I would push back on myself on, on what I wrote, how I defended those three verses. Yeah. Yeah. No, Jeff will Jeff will have grace on you. Um, <laughs> no, but I th- I think the main point of the book, though, I I, I got through most of it. Um, I have a few chapters to go, but I think the main point so far is not is not the duration, but just the idea of being separated from God, and the that it's that there is punishment outside of this life, and then what are we as Christians? Uh, what do we do with that knowledge? And it really, I mean, the, the whole book just has been kind of just, it's like he wrote it for me. I've been going through a lot uh, just mentally for a while. And it's like everything is like, oh, okay, yeah, this this is like talking right to me. What am I, what do I do with that knowledge? You know, if it's, yeah. no matter what, if it's, if it's annihilation or if it's uh, uh, ECT, it's bad. And I, right. I think that's the main point of the book, and and what yeah. what I hope people get get from it. We we really did want to blend sound theology, rigorous argumentation, but also just a really rich pastoral tone to the entire thing. Because sometimes, oftentimes, these discussions can become so esoteric that we lose sight of, uh, you know, we're talking about real people and real destinies here. And so, yeah, that it, it, it was, it rocked me just writing it and studying for it and everything. So I'm glad it's doing the same for you. I'm piggybacking on, on how you shifted. And I, I always love when people change and they admit they change because so mm. many of the big dogs have ministries geared around a specific teaching of the yep. Bible, which builds in a financial interest yep. to never, ever uh-huh. look at things humbly. Yeah. So I really appreciate you for that. But what's do you have something right now that you believe about the Bible or God that you're holding you believe but you're holding it looser than you used to and would not be surprised if in five years you take a different position than you're at now? Oh, that's good. Um, man, you didn't get me in trouble. So yeah, so the the one that I've been fairly uh, fairly public about is my view of uh, women in in uh, church leadership. I don't like to phrase women in ministry because ministry is too broad. Um, but sh- can not can, but does the New Testament um, set forth a vision for uh, women in positions of leadership in a local church? And I was raised in a real strong, um, you know, the so-called complementarian that, that women can't serve in leadership. And I would say I'm, I, I have not dug into that specific question very thoroughly at all. Um, but I, I would say I've moved from like a hard line, like complementarian, no women in leadership to now I'm like, right, I'm barely kind of complementarian. Um, I'm trying to be the other egalitarian where 
<laughs> women can serve in any office, but I'm still of all the arguments I've wrestled with, and most of my scholarly friends are not on where I'm in, where I'm at. And I we sit down, we have a couple of drinks. I'm like, all right, bring me to your side. Like I actually <laughs> want to go there. They give me their best arguments. I'm like, I'm just. It just isn't. I still have questions that you're not answering, and right. um, so I, I could see myself. Um, I, I've got no intrinsic allegiance to the view I grew up with. If the Bible does set forth a vision for women in leadership, I'm you know ha- happy to go there. And actually, the church I'm at now, we have uh, women uh, that preach. Sometimes we, uh, I would say, most of the elders are probably egalitarian. They're not where I'm at, um, so it's. You know, I'm I'm happy being in diverse context there. The the other one, I think, um, I think just under just understanding what is biblical inspiration is one that I haven't really looked into. Things like inerrancy, infallibility, and also the whole science and creation, Genesis one to eleven, and especially one to three. I mean, I could I'll just go where the evidence leads. There, I've got no allegiance to any position. Yeah. I just haven't really looked in. So. Wow, you just are listing cans of worms that we are all about. <laughs> I don't really? even. I, what, what? Oh, I would man. love to hear your thoughts on those three. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if you have time. I don't know if you have time. Um, I I know we're in different spot. Like the three of us are in uh, the same in a lot of areas, but we wrestle. Like for myself, yeah. I consider myself egalitarian, and I'll be ready to give you a hug whenever you come over to my side of the fence. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I think it's a matter of time, but I, I do think that's where the church is move, moving in general, which is another sure. yeah. question I, oh, I have yeah. later of where you think certain yeah. things are going broadly in the church. But yeah, I'm, maybe I'll let these guys speak briefly. Like Genesis for me is not a scientific document and it was never intended, sure. intended to be. I grew right. up where it was the scientific truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not until, I mean, some listeners know this story, so I won't do it too much, but it's not until the last few years that I've really kind of unraveled and and made faith and made interpretation my own. So yeah, yeah G- Genesis. I don't. What was the other one you mentioned? Oh, inspiration. Like, what does it mean that the Bible is inspired? Or oh god, are that's categories of iner- categories of inerrancy are those helpful categories? Are they even true and biblical? Yeah. And- what do, you, what do you do with contradictions in the Bible and or apparent contradictions? Right. And, that so. is such a good conversation, Scott, and I know yeah. very well. <laughs> and in general, in general, it's, for me, it's just any talk of inerrancy is almost a time waster because you, you can go so many different ways. I, right. In general, yeah. I don't believe in inerrancy, um, yeah. but because we're missing the point and missing a lot of the meaning that was in the text that we miss if we're just trying to argue if everything was as it said but right i'll leave that alone i know scott's itching scott where are you at go for it <laughs> i zach i would just i mean encourage you to be slow to come to conclusions that are god actually didn't say what scripture says that god said well, I didn't mention anything about my, that, Scott. Come on. Not man. today. <laughs> not today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if we uh, if we get you back on here sometime, we'll we'll just have a geeky session where we'll we'll drink some <laughs> bourbon and get into that. Yeah, we could talk about um, ex opera operandus. <laughs> what does that mean again? I used yeah, to know that what? Meant, my Latin's. 
<laughs> there's a there's a controversy between that and next opera operande. Uh, that's where the priest, if the priest gives communion, um, the priest righteousness either matters or doesn't matter. Oh right, something like that. I don't know. I don't even. I I heard it on on the dividing line with James White. So I mean, whatever oh, that's gosh. worth. Oh man, I was just say the inerrancy. I think so many of the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility conversations, um, I think we get lost in terminology too. So like, for sure. Um, for instance, like in, in fight in my book on nonviolence, I did some work on like, um, uh, the book of Joshua and ancient near East military genres, meaning when a certain nation talks about a military victory, how do they do that? Like there's actually a specific kind of military genre that allows for a lot of hyperbole. I, I think if you look at it that way, if you look at it through the lens of what does the ancient genre allow, rather than placing modern categories and expectations, let's look at the Bible through the lens of ancient categories. Then that opens up, I think, a very generous or you know broad view of what is errant or not an errant or whatever. So I, I'm very happy with um, massive exaggerations in, in the Bible. I mean, when it says that Zerah came across, uh, came to Israel with a million men, like that's newsflash. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a million men. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just not that there's, there's nothing in the, in any sort of credible scientific or historical source that would allow for a number even close to that. I mean, at the most generous uh, estimations on population in Canaan around the mi- late Middle Bronze Age, you know, the time of Judges, or whatever, um, uh, prior to the Judges, is m- maybe like a hundred thousand people. <laughs> yeah, like that's like pushing it, you know, probably more like fifty thousand. Um, and and so a lot of the numbers in the Bible, they're 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 very exaggerated, and that's okay. People say yeah. oh, they start freaking out. They're, no, 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 no. That that's that's normal in that right. genre. If I said I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, my wife's not going to flip out saying, "All right, I guess I'll go kill a horse." You know, and like we we <laughs> use natural, we use natural. Um, uh, Can you do that in Boise? Y- you know, yeah. There's some strange things up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that that's where I think this conversation so often just looks at inerrancy and what is the Bible from post-enlightenment modern categories if we just get back to ancient near east ways of doing you know of writing history and interpreting history i think it it just changes the discussion well yeah and i and i think kind of what i said earlier is we can't well i don't want to throw something out or or disregard it because of how people are defining it going back to how the bible defines it if you know jesus saying uh kind of affirming moses or you know the the writings. If you believe Moses, you believe me. If yeah. if if Jesus is referring back to that, you know, not in not to, and and that's another thing. Uh, you know, putting other labels on it be, beyond what people are defining it as, like you know, putting labels like uh, not you know, uh, like perfect or so, mm-hmm. something like that. I don't I don't think that that's what they're saying. But but yeah, just don't just don't disregard something because of how people today define it right our, yeah. yeah like yeah. you said i think we could all agree yeah. on that press and going forward for the church you've written about extensively about sexuality nonviolence. we're gonna have all your books in the show notes 
in addition to links to find you and all that. But going forward, do you have any predictions of just where you think the church is headed when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to women? I think we, we probably got a hint of that. But just for example, I, I feel like the conservative church in general is going to have to come up with some sort of affirming structure while I think they're working on it without giving up what they believe the Bible is teaching um, in a way that doesn't shut people out and create division that doesn't need to be there. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I think that's probably the movement of, of culture, right or wrong. So what do you see? Is, uh, there, is there, whether it's sexuality or not, is, is there anything that you Yeah, have? that's, that's a, I think where it's so hard to say because things are moving so rapidly marriage predates government like this is the oldest most fundamental institution um that has always been defined as a union between one man and and one woman um and that has so quickly been overturned it's not i don't think it's clear that that trajectory will keep on going that direction it could it could it's just there's such a i mean massive weight to a so-called traditional view of marriage that has so quickly been overturned in the West. Remember, this is not a majority world conversation. Right. Um, by and large to think that that's just going to set pace for the rest of the the world. Maybe it will, but you know, you have, for instance, you know, the abortion back back in Roe v. Wade, um, there, there's been a lot, you know, a kind of a, a swing back the other direction, you know, where, um, it seems that, pro-choice is more of a minority position. Pro-life has is, is gained a lot of steam, even among non-religious people, or even the no-fault divorce that Ronald Reagan introduced in California mm. what, back in the 70s. Um, even secular sociologists are realizing that's not good for society. We thought we were making a step forward. We realized right. that, that that's actually not good for society. So I don't think we can tell whether even secular culture as a whole will continue to say, this is progress. We may end up 5, 10, 20 years to say we've actually regressed and we need to rethink some of these things. I, I don't, I can't really, pre- I think it's, to me, it's kind of up in the air where culture is going to go, I think. Right. As far, as far as the church goes, man, yeah. I, my prediction, and it's nothing more than a prediction, is that for the branches of Christianity that are going to affirm same-sex marriage, I I still think that's going to be a strong minority, and I think it will probably um, create its own sort of brand of Christianity. I, I just I don't see how the two views can exist within a sort of maybe evangelical is too narrow. Um, yeah, we'll just say evangelical within within the evangelical church really broadly defined. Um, I just don't see those existing side by side, even, you know, most people that came out of evangelicals, like a Rachel Held Evans or somebody, you know, um, you know, she clearly says, I'm not evangelical anymore. Like I'm, and most people I know that are gay Christian or Christian straight and affirming or whatever, they are so done with evangelicalism. And yet evangelicalism does seem to be going pretty strong. I mean, most of the churches that are growing, right. Or, well, you have Catholic church, and then non-denominational kind of low church evangelicals. All the mainline churches are are shrinking. From what I, I that's confirmed that, but that's right. the study I've seen. But um, so I, yeah, I just don't I don't see the affirming view catching the steam that it it's 
trying to catch within mainstream evangelicalism. Okay. And you have Hatmaker and whatever coming out. And um, I, I don't think that, I'm, uh, let me say, I'm not convinced that that is signs of like this kind of snowball gaining, gaining, gaining to where right. in five, 10 years um, I'm going to be in the minority or something. I just, I just don't see that happening. And it's largely due to, well, he, here's, and I'll end with this, but even in the, the people who are affirming same-sex marriage, and same-sex sexuality, whatever, I don't see them, I don't know what their sexual ethic is. Like, they're yet to produce, like, a coherent, distinctively Christian view of marriage and sexuality. They've looked at the trees saying, I think two people can get to get married. That's, I think that's fine. The, the prohibition passages don't outline. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But so what is what is the Christian view of marriage? Is it just, is it a, is it a, um, uh, is it a genderless institution? I, I just, I, I don't, I have yet to see a coherent, distinctively Christian sexual ethic and marriage or view of marriage from the affirming view. I've seen kind of, you know, nitpicking a few passages with alternative interpretations, but that yet they haven't, I haven't seen anybody replace it with anything that's distinctively Christian um, that's going to work for the global <laughs> Christian movement. Yeah. Um, well, anyway. in, in, in Christ, there's no longer male nor female. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Scott drops the mic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like Jesus making grape juice instead of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely noticed that if you, if the listener, dear listener, go to pressandsprinkle.com, you have been writing a lot about sexual ethics recently. Yeah. And it's very, yeah. very interesting. You almost are apologetic that you're spending so much time on it, but I don't think you need to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, my my goal this year is just to read, I mean, a ton of books just on sexual ethics, gender, just get my arms around them. Because I, I focus more narrowly on same-sex sexuality and kind of, you know, biblical passages and stuff. But there's this much broader ethical, theological, sociological, political discussion going on that I haven't got my arms around. So I'm trying to trying to spend more time there. But. I think there's something before that, and it, it's at the family foundation of where— all of that, I think there's a spring, uh, unfortunate springboard from family structure and and just love that's created within a family, um, just a healthiness and and it's my opinion, um, just, just because I saw uh, my sister um, is a lesbian and my parents divorced and my sister only knew men who left and you yeah. know and. And then my mom remarried and that man left another man. And he kind of, yeah. you know, was a little bit physical with my sister and, and he ended up leaving. And so she only knew oh, men wow. a certain way. And, and so the fact that she's a lesbian, I'm like, I completely get it. And yeah. and then at the same, yeah. at the same time, sometimes I'm like, I don't really think she is. I think she's just really pissed off that her life sucked yeah. growing up. So I'm yeah. always, I've oh, always okay. wanted to do, a, a longitudinal study of, of a lot of um, people as you have, which I so love that you dedicate that time of these people to just find, not that they, I don't think they would want to hear the answer. Um, if that ended up being like, Nope, it was your upbringing. You weren't born this way. Oh man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's uh you can read more about that. <laughs> that's my side note. People to be loved. That's, that's pretty cool. No, ultimately, that's, yeah, I do wanna, that's the theme. 
Yeah. You, how, I do want to supplement everything I said about marriage and sexuality because that was very one-sided. And if anybody's um, yeah, not familiar with what I've spoken or written on it, it's going to be terribly they're f- they're furious. inaccurate. They're furious at you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I – um, well, we don't have time to get on to it. But yeah, yeah I – Go ahead. Um, <laughs> well, I just think that the evangelical church in this conversation has done so much – damage to the lgbtq people um that it's um that's what drove me to write on this topic what actually drove me into it was not the theological defense um as a theologian i i want to be honest with the evidence and i'm and i'm very i i'm more and more i'm seeing that as being very significant and to my mind pretty clear very clear actually um but i'm equally passionate um, and depending on the day, maybe more passionate sometimes about the the damage that the church has done in this conversation in the name of defending truth or whatever. And I mean, I've, there's few gay people I've met. I've got a lot of gay friends, um, few LGBTQ people that I know that either didn't, that didn't grow up in the church. Most of them grew up in the church. Statistically, it's 83% LGBTQ community grew up in the church. Almost everyone has had a very dehumanizing, isolating, pretty anti-gospel experience, and to me, that's that's damnable. <laughs> um, so I, as yeah, so I don't have a lot of friends. I <laughs> I I will get I will get. I will get back-to-back emails from like a, a liberal saying, you don't love people, uh, you just say you love people, and a conservative saying, you're too kind to the gays or whatever. Oh, and, man. And it's just like, I'm like, you guys should go hang out. Like, you guys are both. <laughs> you might learn something. So, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the best compliment I ever got was, you know, in this conversation, if you're getting critique from both sides, you're probably doing something right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm equally passionate. And people say you can't do both. You, you can, you're either going to be affirming and loving or you can stick to your version of the truth and you're not going to be loving. And I, my goal in life is to try to find that, that sweet spot where you can actually do, do both. And, you know, the, the one thing most people on the sidelines of this discussion don't realize, there's so, so much diversity. It's not a left versus right thing. I mean, there's... Um, you know, there's several, there's a lot of gay people that oppose gay marriage. Say, I'm gay, I'm going to find a same-sex partner, but that's not marriage. That's destructive to society. That's gay people saying that. There's several kids being raised by gay parents who have come out and said, you know what, I love my mom, I love my my mom's partner, it's a good environment, but I'm opposed to gay marriage. Kids have the right to be raised by a mother and a father. The scientific evidence is pretty clear that both genders are the healthiest environment for the in fact, there's, that's pretty much a case closed deal. Even it was back in the 90s, early 2000s, when there was so much overwhelming evidence from science that even far left liberals said, okay, we give up. Like the evidence is clear that the most healthy environment for a child is biological mom, biological dad. Um, obviously, there's, you know, what do you do with single parents and whatever? But yeah, it's um, so there's, there's just there's so much diversity out there. So I can keep going. I'll do one more. You know, Paul McHugh, who was one of the leading psychiatrists, who was the leading sex change um, operator or whatever. He's a guy, he was a guru in like performing sex change. I mean, this guy is like world-renowned psychiatrist. He's come out in the last few years saying, uh, I think we really got this wrong. Like this is, there's, 
there's it, it, it's like there was psychological little, damage done yeah by doing that they said the one of the worst things a person could do is when there's gender identity confusion going on in adolescence to to just jump in and affirm the gender identity that the adolescent is trying to choose. They said in almost every instance, any gender nonconformity uh, behavior works itself out to where they realign with the biological sex to, to implement hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery, sex change. You are just doing incredible damage. You're elevating suicide rates. You're increasing depression in the name of, well, this is who you want to be. This is who we're going to, we're going to affirm that. And, and this is, again, this is not even a conservative, even this right. is just a guy who is looking at the data saying, we have let this conversation get way too politicized. The science just does not go that direction. So um, the, all that to say, there's so much diversity within the LGBTQ conversation. It's, it's not just either affirm or not. There's right. just, um, for sure. It's way more complicated. Every subject we tackled is worthy of much more time than we gave it. So, but I think it's a good primer for our listeners. I know a lot of them know you, but um, check out PressAndSprinkle.com. We'll have everything in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to say? How people can contact you, or what you want to, what, what you want people to know? No, no. My website's the uh, one-stop shop, so you can go there. Hey, okay. hey, uh, how's contact uh, page? Are, are you? A, I'm sorry. Are you a skier? Uh, I have been a skier. I just, I just took up, uh, how's bogus. I just took up a snowboarding. So, uh, yeah, I've been going, we went to uh Brundage up in McCall and, and there's better oh, snow up there. I love it. <laughs> I love going up to boat. I'd, I'd hitch rides at oh. the bottom of the hill and go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bogus is great, but, uh, that, wo- that road is so yeah. windy, man. My it's crazy. It's just like yakking by the time we get up there. I had a little, I had a little 1973 bug I'd take and just slip and slide yeah. all over the place. Oh yeah. It's, oh, I'd end up in the, I'd end up in the little Creek off to the side of the, <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was so good um, to talk with you. Yeah, you ho- guys too. I hope we could do this again. Yeah, what are you working on now? Yeah, any books in the hopper? Yeah, so I, no, I so I started this organization, the the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Um, so I'm doing a lot of writing and research for that right now. So, okay, PrestonSprinkle.com. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Right on. Thanks, Preston. Thank appreciate you. it. Love what you're doing. All right. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate the encouragement. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Jeff. Zach. We lost Scott. Scott hung up when Preston did. That was not the part of the plan. No. But regardless, what'd you think? I love I love the time that he gave us. Preston's got a lot of knowledge and he's very passionate about it. It's just fun to hear him pull from, you know, his his life um research and experiences how about you i'm glad you asked jeff (laughs) um i (laughs) i don't know why that's funny yeah i don't know either um i like preston a lot like even where i disagree and I, i didn't push back when he said something that i disagree with um why not which wasn't much but it almost doesn't matter the point is he is seeking truth where he thinks the evidence is going and he's not afraid to change positions, which more people need that. And the conversation and the robust arguments are a part of that. 
but how you do it. And he does it with grace and dignity. I really appreciate how he can change and how he admitted where he thinks he might be changing, like with right. egalitarianism or complementarianism. Um, so I really appreciate that aspect of it. And he's right. We tend to, especially that we left off with sexuality, which is a whole can of worms, gender, in an effort to love people and to support people. And I, I do this myself. The tendency is to either ignore data or judge or, or not, not want to deal with certain facts in favor of whatever the people want for their life. Right. And what he exposes is that it's not that simple. Nothing is ever that simple. It's not like a, you can be whatever you want. You can identify with whatever you want to identify with. And it's not the converse where there's, no, it's a man and a woman. And, and that's it. He recognizes there's a broad pattern of, uh, Right. We're being infiltrated by a businessman. <laughs> so ridiculous. We're recording it. Three, four, five, five. We have a friend of the show, Matt Sather. You can see him on multiple episodes <laughs> con- conducting business in the background. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was funny. Anyways. He was oblivious. I think he just thought we were chit-chatting. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, just the admission of the complication of things and how we really need to be careful, how we pigeonhole people and box people in and realize that people are more than the categories that everybody wants to put people in categories, myself included. And Preston has the big picture. He has a comfortable big picture view that, as Scott said, you know, coming to conclusions now, I'm going to going to kind of hack what he said not take it away but just the idea of coming to conclusions you don't have to have a black and white view of things and that's i think a a, a big challenge within societies we want people to have a black and white view and, and preston doesn't i don't I, you don't i mean it's like all in process we're all moving um and, and we learning. all have been given we all have a very narrow view of free will there's not like a we get all the choices and we can pick from each thing equally morally no we're we're born into certain situations every one of us that has affected our worldview and where we're at and re- as long as we realize that that's the true of everyone even the really bad people um oh, the, those really bad people that those have really worse, bad people that they have not worse me. sins they're not me it's not. it's not me who i'm talking about <laughs> I think it helps you deal with people that it helps you accept that, yes, they see things differently and not do that quick judge and it's done. Once we give somebody a category, they're not human anymore. Mm, Yep. They're, they're a political football. Right. That, that bullshit's got to end. We're ending it bit by bit. Scott and Jeff and I don't agree on everything. Not at all. We hate each other most of the time. Pretty much. But in, a, in a loving, brotherly way. Jeff is sitting next to me. Scott is dead in a parking lot, got <laughs> killed by a meth head. I don't know where he is. <laughs> what? Hey, but grace, grace to the meth head. Wherever Scott is, dead in a ditch, still somehow he's disagreeing with me and finding a way to argue <laughs> with me from the grave. He's, he's, <laughs> he's currently trying to text on his deathbed, I don't agree. Where does it say that in the Bible? Also send help. (laughs) Uh, Well, 
Scott, hey, say hello to Jesus. You'll finally get to speak to him. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, that's terrible. Scott's not here to defend himself. And I just, <laughs> I just want to say, he knows we love him. Uh, I just want to say so many things. Oh, goodness. Preston is, he's, he's a good, good man in that he does the research. He leaves it open for discussion. And all of his, the theme of all of his books are really just loving people, people, um, in not the right way, but just loving people. And be more Christ-like, so I don't, I don't think you can be heading in a better direction. Yeah, that book, homo, uh, "People to Be Loved: Why Homosexuality Is Not Just an Issue." I believe that's the subtitle. Just pick your issue, have that as your subtitle. Why being a Republican is not just a thing. Why being a Democrat is not just a thing. Whatever your thing is that you tend to group people into, they're more than that. So. That clarifies encouragement. That's good, man. We just really distilled that to some a little you nugget did. that you people did. can chew on. Just chew on that, dear listener. Thanks, Zach. Bros Babbles beer, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Read and review us on iTunes. We'll read it. Oh, and by the way, mm. if you were going to, uh, if you could answer that question, if you were uh, with your best friend Jesus of Nazareth, surrounded by the Roman soldiers, what would you do? Watch Jesus be killed. Um, jump in front of the spear? No. That was not one of the options. That was too easy. You're not going to jump uh, in front of the spear. Uh, drive a sword through Caesar and then obviously fight off all the soldiers. Uh, or obviously. C, you would cower in the grassy field sprinkling Sprinkle yourself. in your robe on your sandals. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So Let us know. Yeah. And then you can review us. I did want to say Zach Hansen shot me a note after he listened to our episode with Godspeed. And he said, you can follow him on Twitter, Zach Hansen 89. So now I have to start listening to another podcast. Thanks, Crater. And he gave us a few hashtags. Hashtag Godfellas. Hashtag Scott the Stickler. Hashtag Penis Bump. Hashtag Head to Head. I you, you stifled that laugh so well. You were smiling. I'm not going to comment on that, Zach Hansen. You uh, so listen to Godspeed episode. You'll know what he's talking about. All right. Godspeed. Grace, peace, cheers. I'm 52. I'm a gym teacher. Gym teacher. I'm a gym teacher. Don't quote me, bro. Scott, seriously, shut the hell up.